Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. Imagine accepting a job offer and then never showing up to work. (laughs) Or imagine building a swimming pool in your backyard and never learning how to swim. Or how about buying the car of your dreams, but never taking the vehicle out of your garage? If none of this makes any sense, then why would we think it different in our faith? Why would you get baptized and then forget about the Jesus you've just professed belief in? I mean, why would you start something and not do anything with what you've just started? It's such a waste, isn't it? And doing so ensures that nothing in your life will change. How did we get to the place where faith is something that some of us just do? Occasionally, perhaps, if it works out, if we can schedule it in. What does it mean that we've become content with that? The assurance of our salvation when we receive, when we make a profession of faith, y'all, that moment is not the finish line. It's just the beginning When we come down front at the end of a service in response to what God is doing in our lives and out of a response to what God has done in the scripture that is convicting us, when we come down here, it's not the end to celebrate. It is just the beginning. And honestly, y'all, if many of us knew what that actually meant, you wouldn't have come down when you did. Paul says, I appeal to you. I know, part of me just wants to check out in that moment. It seems archaic. Who talks like this, right? Let me, let me translate it a little bit differently for us. Instead of, I appeal to you, how's this? People, I'm begging you. I am begging you on behalf of what God has done in your life to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. People, I'm begging you to do this. Paul is begging us to begin the process of becoming disciples. He has acknowledged to these believers that yes, it is absolutely imperative that we recognize and claim God's grace, that is gift, undeserved, unmerited. We call it grace. We call it mercy. We call it Calvary. The image of Jesus on the cross. A love for us best known in sacrifice. Not milk, but life. That is the starting place, absolutely. But Paul here is begging them to do more than just settle themselves on a decision that they may have made weeks, months, years prior. 
But why should we? Well, he tells us it's because of God's grace and mercy. Because of God's grace and mercy, because of what God has done, it requires a response to us. It's not transactional. It's just obvious. If God has done what God has done, and you truly get it, it will elicit a response in your life of commitment, of prioritizing, and of sacrifice. Becoming a disciple and not simply a believer is a response to what God has done for you. At the heart of discipleship is sacrifice. Because the best expression of love is sacrifice. I'll confess to you, I, I misheard a part of the scripture this week. Many of you all know that my rhythm each week is that this afternoon I will begin to flush all that I've accumulated for today's message. Why? Because I've got to prepare for next Sunday. It's the tyranny of Sunday. It's always coming. It's a blessing. I love it. It's a privilege to sit with God's word, to chew on it, to wrestle with it, to study it, to reflect on it. And when I do that, by about Tuesday each week, I've memorized some of the words and phrases, which is part of the process, except for the fact that about 48 hours ago, I recognized that I had gotten a part of this wrong. It's a very um, recognizable passage here. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. And we also know that he goes on to say that we are to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it all hinges on this, this idea that we should present our lives as living sacrifices. I mean, that preaches, present our lives as living sacrifices, except that's not what Paul says here. Did you catch it? We are to present our bodies. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. Paul gets specific here. He gets granular. He talks about something that frankly makes me a little bit nervous. He's talking about the embodiment that we walk around in all day. And if you've read Romans to this point, you will know that Paul talks a lot about our bodies. Because you can't go through this world without being aware of that which we embody truly, ourselves, our senses, our tastes, our appetites, our preferences, our desires. This, of course, all makes sense if you rewind this to chapter 6, where Paul has something to say about our bodies. He says, Do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions no longer present your members, your bodies, to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and present your members to God as instruments of righteousness. He's telling us that our bodies matter. And if we're not aware of it, our bodies will call the shots. 
that which feels good, that which tastes the way we want it to taste, that which gives us pleasure and sensually provides us with that which we want. Y'all, Paul is not talking in big ideas here. He's talking about our day-to-day lives. Present your bodies, not just your lives. Present your bodies, because your bodies can frankly do a lot of harm. Paul's begging his listeners to express their gratitude for what God has done through sacrifice. Which means that at the end of the day, you simply have to ask yourselves, is your love of God greater than your love for your own desires? (laughs) Paul knows this is going to be a hard sell. Our world presents itself with any number of ways For us to please ourselves and our senses. Which is precisely why Paul tells us that we must move from being conformed to the world to being transformed by God's word. He tells us, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Let's look at that a little bit more closely. Don't be conformed to this world. To to be conformed, of course, is to become part of, to look like, to be camouflaged in that which you are surrounded by. We know that. But we also know about the world, and we can really boil down the world's greatest values to two things. Pleasure and power. The world values Pleasure and then doing whatever it takes to get what we want, what feels good, what, what fattens our billfolds and enlarges our checking accounts. However you define pleasure as being that which is what you think in your senses' best interest, that is problematic. Because we are immersed in a world that wants to feed us whatever it is we desire. And to congratulate us when we receive it. And Paul is telling us, do not be seduced by this gravitational pull that we experience in this world. Instead, Being a disciple, being a recipient of God's grace means that we lean into transformation, that we are changed. Some of you all know exactly what I'm talking about. This acknowledgement that that which we have become is not what God wishes us to be. That feeling that we have when we come to this awareness for many of us feels like we're trapped. That we cannot change, that we cannot break out We cannot come up with new endings to stories that we believed falsely. It's why many of us spent time on Wednesday evening sharing our stories and recognizing that the story that the world taught us is not the story that God wants us to hear, to live by, and to put into action. We know that this process of transformation, of hearing God's story for us, is not easy and certainly not for the faint of heart. It requires honesty, reflection, acknowledgement, taking responsibility, 
and seeing that it's not okay to remain who we once were. And the best part of this, of course, is that God is the author of new stories, of starting new things. Our God is in the transformation business. So do not be content with the shadows that exist in your home, in your office, on your devices, and in your life. That is not the life God wants for you. There is a reason, brothers and sisters, that you are sick. There is a reason why your hearts are heavy. There is a reason why your minds are cluttered. There is a reason why your lifestyle is creating and providing the results that they do. We have for too long been married to a world that wants to give us that which harms us. And becoming aware of that is the first step in claiming that the only way to be transformed is Christ Jesus. But we cannot stop at the altar. Think of it as terms of a marriage. Our brothers and sisters, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ, they talk about a relationship with Christ as being married to Jesus. Imagine meeting Jesus at the altar and then not taking your vows. That's what our lives look like if we're not careful. What you're experiencing and what you're living is nothing new. Which is why you're here this morning, I believe, to hear God's word to us echo down through generations and centuries of people who've made professions of faith and are not content with that. We are called to go beyond belief, to make and to be disciples. So Paul then tells us a little bit about what those initial steps of transformation look like. And I have to tell you, it surprises me. If I were to come up with what happens next on the other side of your baptism, as you emerge from the waters of Deep Creek, as you begin this new life, what happens first? What are the priorities? What are the values as you begin this new path? I wouldn't come up with what Paul did, which is why we're reading it today. Paul says that in order to be transformed, to be discipled, if you will, you got to first check your ego at the door. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. You know, the first mark of a disciple is selflessness. Transformation begins with humility. This is where the walk and the path of discipleship begins. It is in recognizing that you are not who you think you are. It's true. As Jesus says, we will know a tree by its fruit. But I'll help you out even before you get to looking for the fruit. If a follower of Jesus is full of bluster and narcissism and ego, they are not walking on the path of discipleship in Christ's image. Which, of course, should be a warning to us, not an invitation to judgment. But we must be aware that, according to Paul, this first step on this path of discipleship means remembering who you really are. Don't be arrogant. 
Recognize your own temptation toward narcissism. Be sober in how you think about yourself. Being a disciple means being focused on serving others and not about yourself and about your own self-promotion. Paul goes on to tell us that we've all been equipped by the Holy Spirit to be good for something. But before we can even get to spiritual gifts and vocation, he wants to make certain that we are malleable enough in our, in our hearts and in our souls so that our egos don't become a barrier to being shaped by a God who wants to write a new story for us. So he goes on to talk about a different kind of body. He's talked about bodies and embodiment in Romans, but now he's to the place where he's going to reframe it for us. He says, for as in one body, we've got many members and not all the members have the same function. We understand that. So, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. We belong to one another. We are connected to one another and each of us has a role to play, not for ourselves, but for the body and for others. Yes, this is about spiritual gifts, but it's also about vocation and what we do with our lives. As disciples, we've been equipped not for our own self-benefit and our own career trajectory, but rather we've been equipped to do and be good for something. Not for ourselves, but for others. That is the common good. So Paul gives us some examples of what these these gifts and vocational expressions look like. You're familiar with them. Prophecy, literally being the mouthpiece of God. Teacher, one who teaches. An exhorter, one who proclaims. The leader, someone that moves us forward together. And then there are three other vocations and, and spiritual gifts that he mentions that can be grouped together. Ministry, serving, giving, and being compassionate. Each of these literally mean the expression of giving to others what they need in practical terms. I don't think this plays very well in our context. <laughs> I don't think this is something that hits pay dirt in our 21st century world. I mean, broadly speaking, I don't think we feel like we need to change. And we certainly don't want to. We don't want to do anything that will threaten our ability to get what we want. So instead, our posture is congratulating ourselves on whatever it is we wish and desire. We trust in our own judgment and seek to become our own God. Oh. This is an old story. Flip back in your Bible to Genesis and you find that God's very first human creation was tempted by wanting what they wanted and getting what they felt they were owed. It is the oldest story we know that God is God and we want to be just like him. 
I think we just want our lifestyles, our behavior, and our decisions to be affirmed, to be justified, and that we are to be left alone. Which is precisely why few of us become anything more than what we are right now. I defy you to read the Gospels and ignore the call to sacrifice and to be selfless and to be reoriented toward God. So Paul begs us to let it begin with sacrifice. He begs us. Because sacrifice birthed an appreciation for what God has done for us moves us into being transformed. And we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, which is not entertainment, which is why there are few of us in these pews than there used to be because we have so many ways for us to be entertained and for our appetites to be slated. Let's just call it for what it is. If it's not entertainment, many of us don't want any part of it. And so the temptation for churches, for any of us, for any entities, is to make something interesting and entertaining so that we'll give our attention to it. But that's not the way of transformation. Transformation is about the renewal of our mind, which is about dialogue. It's about participation. It's not about sitting and receiving. It's about participating and engaging and wrestling with a God who wants to wrestle with us. And talking to a God who wants to walk with us in the garden in the cool of the evening and hear from us and to be changed by the mind of Christ. We worship a God who wants to be known. Christ is logos. God is reason. God is explanation. God is revelation. In Jesus, we meet a God who wants to be known. But y'all, to be known, it requires something of us. Curiosity. Commitments to presence. And all of that, of course, challenges our inclination to be lazy. Y'all, renewal is not entertainment. Renewal is about participation. It's about taking a risk. It's about engaging in God's word, which is why we want you to be here. It's why we want you to be in God's word. It's why we want you to be a part of a community that is always asking questions of a God who loves us. Years ago, I would find myself at a restaurant that at the end of the evening they would give fortune cookies. The cookies are pretty terrible, but of course, there's the fortune. I developed this really bad habit of of finding a fortune that I liked and and thinking um, that if If I got rid of it, the fortune wouldn't come true. So I would tuck it away in my billfold. I remember one such fortune that I received. Fortune favors the wise and prudent. I thought that was worth keeping. So I tucked it away in my billfold and forgot about it until I had to dig into my billfold to provide the officer who had pulled me over my driver license. I have to tell you, 
As I was driving through Appalachian State University in Boone, during an intersemester break, I didn't think that my going 44 miles per hour in a 35 mile per hour zone warranted my being pulled over. But the officer felt differently. I was embarrassed, a little defensive, but I watched what I said as the officer kindly asked for me to present my driver's license. It was dark, it was dim, I was mad at myself, I was irritable, thinking, how am I going to pay for this? And I, I pulled it out and I handed it to him. He went back to his car and he sat there quite a while while I stewed. The officer came back and he said, here is your registration, taking his time curiously. Here is your driver's license. And here is your fortune from your fortune cookie that was stuck to it. He said, I think it said something about being wise and prudent. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I believe that it did. He said, be wise and prudent and change your driving habits. Have a good evening, sir. And he left me off with just a warning. Y'all, you don't need a fortune cookie to know that you need to be more than what you've become. Another fortune cookie that I received was actually stolen from Oscar Wilde. Discontent is necessary for the progress of any man, woman, or na nation. Discontent is necessary for the progress of any man, woman, or nation. And you know, he's right. Because you know what we call that? Repentance. Progress, transformation, and discipleship. It begins with a wise course in being prudent, sober, and recognizing that something must change. Let us pray. God, help us to recognize this morning that you call us to be more than what we have become and that it begins in an exercise that we do not want to be a part of, and that is sacrifice, of recognizing that that which we have given our lives to is that which we shouldn't have sacrificed so much for our souls. So reorient us, bring us back to you, and allow us to see that a life of faith is a life of discipleship and of continued transformation in your name. For it's in your name, O oh God, that we pray these things. Amen.